You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Ladies and gentlemen, it's James uh, Wright, and he's going to talk about medieval graffiti. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much. Um, My name is James Wright. I'm a senior archaeologist at the Museum of London Archaeology and a former Dorset resident. It's my first time back in Dorset since I moved away six years ago. So thank you very much for making me welcome today. Um, I'm going to talk about actually not medieval graffiti as such. I'm going to talk about ritual protection in in the early modern period, the Renaissance, the 16th and 17th centuries in England. And I'm going to talk about two buildings in particular. I'm going to talk about the Queen's House, which is at the Tower of London, um, and also Knoll in Kent, 25 miles to the southeast. The Queen's House uh, was uh, built in, uh, well, rebuilt rather, in 1539-40. It is the house of the Lieutenant of the Tower, the Queen's representative, or the King's representative uh, at the Tower in the past. Um, It is uh, uh, built in the the tradition spanning the medieval into early modern constructional style. So you see a bit of both in that. It's a timber frame building, and it's in fact the only timber frame building left in the city of London. Um, I'm also going to talk about one particular structure at Knoll, which is uh, the King's Tower, uh, which was again a medieval structure, a tower, which was remodelled in the early 17th century. So I'm going to talk about these two buildings in particular and how methods were taken to protect them by the either um, construction workers, tradesmen, or the occupants to protect the buildings and the people within them against witchcraft, against demons, and against evil spirits. So to take the Queen's House uh, to begin with, it is an L-shaped building that sits in the southwest corner of the inner courtyard of the Tower of London. You can see it there. Uh, It has a 12th century tower in one corner, which is kind of behind this scaffolding here. Uh, And as you can see, it's timber framed. This range, south range, slightly earlier than the west range, but to all intents and purposes, built in the same uh, campaign of construction. Uh, As you can see from this rather measles pimple uh, distribution map, uh, we have an enormous amount of ritual protection marks which have been identified during a standing building survey as part of a construction uh, and, and a, a conservation programme on the, on the building itself. There were 59 marks identified in total which were put on the building uh, to protect them against the evil spirits. Uh, this all may sound a little bit kooky, a little bit occult. It's perfectly normal practice. You have to remember in the 16th, 17th centuries, the belief in the power of witchcraft and the uh, evil incarnate of Satan and hell was considered to be, across the board, perfectly normal, evil spirits round every corner. So this was a a general fear that inflicted, uh, or was uh, was felt by the entire population as a whole during this period. Um, Of those uh, marks, we have 54 of them are burn marks, which look like this tear-shaped uh, mark here. In fact, can we have the lights down? I'm not sure some of these slides are showing as well uh, as they might do. There you go. So you can see this tear-shaped burn mark here, 
Most of the marks I'm going to talk about at the Tower of London look like this. Um, they are not accidental. It has been criticised in the past that these may in fact be unattended uh, lamps, candles which have been left to burn and have scorched the timberwork. If you actually leave uh, lights unattended, they do not create this classic tear-shaped design. They will either burn in a linear fashion straight down like this unattended taper here, or they will leave a very amorphous scorching. So if it is uh, 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 left unattended, uh, you're not going to get that classic tear shape. In order to create that, you have to hold a taper or a candle for 15 to 30 minutes in precisely <coughs> one location at a 45 degree angle for a significant period of time. There is an investment of time as part of this ritual. It cannot be created accidentally. Now, where are we finding these marks? Well. James I gives us a bit of a hint in his book Demonology, which came out in 1597, reprinted 1603. He says that there was fears of witches' familiars entering buildings through wherever the air passed. So your doors, your windows, and your chimneys is where the air is flowing. And we are finding at the Tower of London that these points, which were creating tension and anxiety for the occupants and owners of the building uh, are, are where we're finding the majority of these ritual protection marks. So you can see in the furthest east roof here, which we call roof A, you can see that here's the distribution here. You can see a group of burn marks here right underneath the window, a stud right underneath the window, so classic position. Another group of burn marks on a queen post truss right by a door out onto the ledge. So again, you've seen that distribution windows and doors where they, where they thought that the air was passing and spirits were able to enter into the building. We're also finding scribed symbols. There's not very many of these. You can see here a triskily design, a series of endless lines, which they believed would literally pin demons to the wall. There was this belief at the time that demons, not the smartest characters in the world, if they found a line, they wanted to get to the end of it. If you create an endless line, you create a demon trap, demons there forever. That's the, the, uh, the pseudo-theology behind this belief. Uh, and as you can see here, we've got uh, this triskily here on a common rafter, equidistant between a window and a door. And then a carved design, a, a VV mark, which is a Marian mark, standing for Virgo Virgina, <laughs> invoking the protection of Mary, the mother of God. And that overhangs again on a common rafter, uh, a loft hatch. So uh, a portal, a liminal portal between two parts of the roof. And we're seeing that area marked up and protected as well. Next door in the, uh, the roof adjacent, we're seeing another one of these kind of endless line designs. It's a mesh pattern. It's simply not a doodle before anybody points that out. Uh, we've seen lots and lots of these, as you'll see again at Knoll in the, in the second part of the talk. And you can see this again on a queen post right opposite a door. So a classic location for that one as well. Now there's some really, really dense distribution in this roof as well. You can see lots of groupings of burn marks on mainly on a queen post collar, some on a purlin. Uh, they are right next to another door out onto the lead, so you could explain it one way. However, this queen post truss, which you can see here, is also adjacent to a part of the roof which, which was removed. All of the common rafters were removed sometime in the 18th century, and a, what was originally a gabled roof here became a hitch roof. So obviously that necessitated 
taking the common rafters and the tiles off, air passing into the building. And it's at that point that we're seeing the densest distribution of these burn marks. Again, to protect the owners and the occupants of the building. So who is doing this? Well, we know in some cases, for example, this VV mark that we saw earlier, it's being done by carpenters. Uh, it's done with a very, very distinctive uh, tool, which is a raised knife, which has a curved semicircular profile. You can see one of them here. Uh, and it seems only carpenters use these, and this mark uh, has actually been put on by a carpenter. So I think this was done during remodeling work when a floor was actually inserted in that, type of the, in that part of the building. So this is not 16th century, this is probably later 17th century. Some carpenters are working there. Again, probably some latent fears and anxiety about uh, air flowing into the building during that remodeling. However, the majority of these marks seem to have been put on by the occupants. So what we're seeing here uh, is very, very liminal areas of the building. They're very, very low status areas. They're up in the attics. They are boarded over. They're accessible. You can see some of the original 16th century floorboards here. But they're not being used as uh, dwellings. So you can see on the uh, common rafters here, there's no evidence whatsoever of lime bloom or nail holes from, from lath and plaster on, on, the, uh, on the timber there. So they're probably using these areas merely for storage. However, people are going up there, it's dark, it's spooky, there's air flowing through, they're concerned about witches, demons and the like. It's probably the servants that are doing this. So tradesmen and servants in these examples. Um, there were, in the early 16th, 17th century rather, there were six servants living in the Queen's house, and we even know the names of some of them. Now, there are some of these marks which don't appear to be in any way related to windows, doors and chimneys. Uh, there's a group here, again on Queen Post trusses, but they're right in the middle of the room. They're not near any of those uh, portals into the room. And I think something else is going on here. And I, th I think that we, we should never be didactic with any form of historic graffiti. There, there are multiple uh, explanations possible. And I think what we might be seeing here is uh, marks being put on as a result of healing rituals, possibly down to individual prayers, possible purification rituals of the spaces, and maybe even a little bit of latent Catholicism as well in, in candle mass rituals. So there may be differing explanations, particularly for these marks which are away from the portals. Um, the marks themselves, at a later period, seem to have given people the willies. So later on, they've tried to actually block this up using a little bit of uh, lime render there. They've actually filled one of the marks in. And here on the Queen Post, you can see they've actually tried to chop them away. This might be down to the fact that people actually understood that these were in some way relating to uh, uh, witchcraft. And even though it was anti-witchcraft rituals, they wanted to try and remove all taint and all trace of these from the building. So they've actually tried to cover them and chop them away. So the marks themselves were creating anxieties. Of course, the marks came out of anxiety to begin with. There are certain areas of the building where we're not seeing uh, any marks at all. This is the, the council chamber. This is where the Privy Council of England used to meet. Uh, it seems to have been off limits to the servants entirely. Very, very high status area. As you can see, loads of timber for them to have a go at. Loads of big windows, but no marks whatsoever. So this is off limits. And again, it's a little bit of evidence to say that it's, it's the servants and, and tradesmen rather than the, uh, the owners and, and principal occupants of the house that are putting these marks on there. On top of this, we also found what's called a spiritual midden, 
which is a void next to a chimney, accessed from, from one of the attics. You can see here, here's the chimney, kitchen chimney, and I'm down the bottom of a void here. Now, down this void, we actually found uh, some 1960s builders' rubbish, and sealed under that was an 18th century deposit full of 46 butchered animal bones, scraps of uh, leather clothing, um, there was a broken bladed tool, a bit of a broken uh, spade, uh, and a broken clay pipe, which dated 1700 to 1770, which is how we know the date of it. Now, you might say, well, it's just a rubbish deposit. Well, it's not particularly normal to take your 46 butchered animal bones up two flights of stairs from the kitchen, squeeze through a, a, a loft hatch, which is literally only that big, and then dump it down the side, where you've got lath and plaster walls on one side, right next to a warm chimney, where it's going to stink in the summer. No, you take it out the back, you bury it in a rubbish pit. That's the normal way of doing things. What they're doing here is, is, is another ritual. It's creating a decoy deposit. It's putting elements of humanity, used objects, which have been used to destruction or have been deliberately broken, to actually act as a decoy. So any spirits coming down that portal from the chimney will literally be uh, surprised and go, oh, we, we were going to go into the house, but there's all this lovely stuff down here, stuck down there in the chimney. As far as we know, this is the first time that one of these spiritual movements has ever been excavated by an archaeologist. I'm dead lucky to have done that. Um, normally, it's a contractor or the owner who are ripping things out, and the first time an archaeologist hears about it, they're all piled on the kitchen table out of context. So we got dead lucky with that, really. Uh, a lot of this has to do with latent fears about fire. Uh, so, obviously, the Great Fire of London here. The Queen's House itself partly burnt down in 1604-5. The kitchen itself, which, of course, is next to that uh, spiritual midden. And there was this belief that witches would actually try and fire set and actually uh, malignantly start these fires. So there was this genuine fear. And what we might be looking at where, the, where they are doing ritual protection is that the burn marks are actually inoculating the building. So it's fighting fire with fire. It's sympathetic magic. If you don't believe me, here's a contemporary illustration uh, from 1600 from Germany. There's the witch trying to come down the chimney. There's the mantelpiece. On the mantelpiece is a ritual protection mark, one of those VV marks, and it's been scored through to cancel out the magic so that the witch can come down the chimney. There you go, that's 400 years ago, uh, an artistic representation of it. Down at ground floor, we also have a very dense distribution of burn marks around this doorway, 15 or 20, quite difficult to count them, they're all overlapping with each other. This is a door into a room with no windows. It was probably used as a prison cell. Remember the Tower of London, very, very grim reputation. Uh, just that's the door there. Further down the corridor is the room where they kept Thomas More. So again, this is probably a prison cell, and they may have been marking it up afterwards literally to purify the space from the really grim, awful things that have been happening in the room. This is also the building where Guy Fawkes was uh, imprisoned and interrogated immediately after the gunpowder plot. And, of course, his very, very famous signature before and after the torture. Uh, there's the Fawkes Memorial in the building as well. Across the way, they also kept Everard Digby, who was the financier of the gunpowder plot. He graffitied his own name, also not particularly good handwriting. They'd broken his fingers and thumbs. Um, another building with... Um, I've got five minutes left, I'm all right. Uh, another building with um, a gunpowder plot connection is, in fact, Knoll. 
Knoll was originally constructed uh, in the middle 15th century for a Hundred Years' War veteran, a bit of a swashbuckler fought at Agincourt. He later uh, had his head cut off, actually, uh, during Jack Hague's rebellion, and his son sold it to the Archbishops of Canterbury. It eventually passed to the Tudors, and then passed to the Sackville family, who were still there. They've been there for over 400 years. It was remodelled, this great... Uh, uh, this great medieval palace was remodelled in the early 17th century by Thomas Sackville. He was Lord Treasurer uh, of, of England, so he was a very, very high uh, man, very, very high up. And uh, one of the areas that were remodelled on his watch was the King's Tower, which was being remodelled specifically as a royal suite of apartments for James I. Noel was being turned into a progress house to actually attract further power and patronage to the Sackville family. James, of course, a very, very interesting fellow, considered himself quite a scholar. He'd written the book that I mentioned earlier about um, hunting down witches. Um, he'd actually presided over witch trials himself. So this is a man with a, a reputation for involvement in the occult. And on a beam in the King's Tower, we found all of these ritual protection marks. These are not ordinary carpenter's marks. Uh, what we're seeing here is a bastardised pentagram, again, an endless line demon trap. We're seeing uh, interlocking V's and W's, the Marian marks. We're seeing mesh patterns, a bit like we saw at the, t at the Tower of London, for again, pinning the demon to the wall. Uh, we're seeing all sorts of marks. And we're also seeing burn marks. The interesting thing about the burn marks on this beam is they're running horizontally. They're running horizontally because they were put on when that beam was upright in the framing yard. It was actually planned by the carpenters. Uh, when they actually laid the beam down, it created uh, a distribution. There's the first burn marks, and then you've got the uh, scribe marks. They're all on one side of this beam, and that side of the beam directly faces that fireplace. So again, we've got a connection between a, a chimney, a portal into the room, there, burn marks directly facing the, the fireplace. They're only on that side, and then the bed was here. We know that from documentary sources sleep you were considered to be in very grave danger of possession during sleep you're lying back after loads of sack or mead or cider or whatever and your mouth's open you're snoring the, de uh, the evil spirit comes down the chimney into your mouth takes possession of you so they, they felt the need to protect especially when people were asleep um, we dated the beam interestingly it was dendroed to uh, to have been felled during the winter of 1605 so exactly the time of the gunpowder plot. It was laid the following spring and summer during the aftermath of the powder treason. Very, very interesting time. I'm more interested in the year afterwards than I am in the lead up to the powder plot itself because you have all these interesting things going on. You've got Salisbury describing the plot as an abominable practice of Roman Satan, again, literally linking the Catholics to, to hell. Then there's this wonderful illustration of Guy Fawkes with his famous lantern now at the Ashmolean, about to blow the mine under the House of Lords, whispering into his ear is a demon. Behind the demon is the Pope having tea with Satan. This is not subtle stuff whatsoever, but this is what people were being literally force-fed. This was propaganda on a mass scale in the early 17th century. James was in Parliament giving hellfire and brimstone speeches, uh, there were public sermons by people like Lon um, Lancelot Andrews, um, the Bishop of Chichester. Plays were being written about this. The, gu uh, the gunpowder plot is actually what Macbeth is about. 
Shakespeare, of course, the King's Man, part of the King's Men troupe. So there's lots and lots of propaganda just being washed out. It's exactly like what happened after 9-11. It's exactly what, like what happened after 7-7, after um, uh, the Paris and the Brussels bombings. It's this fear that's just being sent out through the population. And I think that the carpenters at Knoll were soaking that up and were actually putting these marks on the, on the building. The marks are not rare at Knoll. They're all over the building. This changes every single time I give this lecture because we keep finding new ones. However, they're different in the King's Tower. The distribution is so dense there that something else was clearly going on. Here we have the Spangle Bedroom, another high-status uh, room in the building. Fireplace, bed in its original location. <coughs> Under the floor between the two is a beam. On that beam there is one ritual protection mark, not 13 like at the King's Tower. That was being protected in a very, very special way. Two slides to finish. Uh, that area of Knoll continued to give people the willies so that 50 or 60 years later, that exact same fireplace, they were thrusting shoes up there again to create one of these spiritual middens. And these were uncovered in the 1960s. So something was clearly giving people the fear in that particular room. Um, also across the way in the 19th century, in the old laundry, when they re-roofed this medieval building, they were also putting burn marks on the collars as well there, and that's an original 19th century timber. So this, this, these are fears that have gone right the way through from the 16th and 17th century, all the way through to actually 1878 when this was re-roofed. And you're all still doing these practices today. You've hung stockings on your mantelpiece that derives from apotropaic ritual protection uh, using shoes or stockings uh, in conjunction with a chimney. You've also used the expression to touch wood. That's touching the wood of, of, the, of, of, of the cross. Throwing salt over the left shoulder. It's always the left shoulder because the left shoulder is where Satan sits to whisper evil things into your ear. And you throw the salt into his face. And I've got one of these above my back window, the horseshoe over the door or window. These are all things which are still current to this day. Thank you very much for having me in Dorset again. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.